So that's kind of how I look at diagnoses. It's not an underlying cause. It's not a root cause. We've got to get further upstream. And I see implants as a root cause because they are a chronic source of toxic exposure that's just slowly bleeding into the body over time. And they're a chronic immune stimulant as a foreign object that doesn't belong there. The body knows it doesn't belong there. And that's why the body creates a capsule around each implant to try to wall it off, right? Try to protect you. Today, I've got Sarah Philippi uh, with Reversing Breast Implant Illness. Um, this is an interview that I've been really looking forward to because it's different than a lot of the topics that we talk about on this podcast, um, but it's so relevant to a lot of uh, who's listening to this podcast, who's following this Instagram account, um, and just with with the approach, the integrative approach that we take um, to, to care at R3 Physio, this is going to be a topic I think that's going to hit home for a lot of people. And so, uh, let me share a little bit about Sarah and then, um, we'll have Sarah introduce herself a little bit more of it. So, um, Sarah is, uh, she was uh, a registered nurse, still has her license registered nurse and has, um, through her journey, gotten into functional diagnostic nutrition and, uh, specifically working with breast implant illness and, um, post explant, or I guess it'd be explant, not post explant. That's redundant. Um, so explant, um, a lot of it was because of her story, uh, Sarah and I have talked in the past and she shared that story and I'm, um, I'm hoping she'll share some of that with us today too. But, um, you know, initially she was very much the conventional lifestyle, um, and then got breast implants. And about six months after her breast implants started having uh, a lot of just unexplained symptoms, doctors couldn't explain them. Um, I'm sure, um, she was told a number of times that there was nothing wrong because tests came up, um, looking normal. Um, so she, that, that kind of jump started her looking into more of the integrative approach, um, that she finds herself working in now. Um, and so I'm going to have her talk a little bit about her, her experience, her background, and then we'll get into some, uh, good topics. So thank you for being here, Sarah. Of course. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Jason. Of course. Well, so start off by just, just telling us a little bit about, um, any, any part of your journey story that, um, you'd like to share just what, what got you to the point that you are today working with, um, breast implant illness and, and patients that have had explant. Yeah, so for me, I always like to kind of go back to where the desire for breast implants came from as a starting place, because I think that's really key, especially when you're considering um, more of a holistic approach to healing, really making sure that we're not forgetting about the underlying cause for why the implants were placed, right? Why you sought those out. And for some people, it's cancer and just having that risk reconstruction. And for others, it's something entirely different, right? It's more of a um, self-esteem or self-worth issue, you know, body dysmorphia, or just not being happy with what they see in the mirror. And that comes from society's expectations of, of what it means to be a woman and what is deemed valuable and sexy and desirable and you know, all of those things. And so for me, when I was a child, I would say I was probably, I don't know exactly, but maybe nine or 10, somewhere around there. Um, someone really important in my life who I'm very close with said to me, um, oh, you're going to be four foot 11, just like me. Um, but don't you worry, you're going to have the Johnson boobs too. Um, and so it was that, you know, the Johnson boobs became the thing I needed and wanted, you know, and there were other things said that were about physical appearance as well. Like don't, you know, let your belly hang out, suck it in, you know, arch your back. Like that's a prettier way to be standing and, you know, stand tall and all of those things. And it's just about appearance. And so for me, I started to learn very early on that appearance mattered and it was important to have leave to, to, to be well endowed. And that if I wasn't, I didn't have the Johnson boobs and I had something to worry about. And I saw my mom get teased, you know, growing up for just, you know, having a flat chest and, um, 
you know, just not being like the, the other side of my family members um, with the Johnson boobs. So I didn't want that to be me. I wanted to be in the Johnson boob club, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, you know, so fast forward into middle school, I stuffed my bra and into high school, I was always very self-conscious about myself. And um, even though, you know, I, I didn't have any like physical problems, so to speak, like I wasn't overweight. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any disfiguring things about me. It just was that one thing I hung on to because of that belief that was instilled in me that of course was instilled in, in the rest of my family for the same reasons, right? Because that's what society has, has become to expect of us to look a certain way. And it's really driven by those expectations, right? And it changes over the decades, so that what's what's considered sexy, what's considered in or trendy for bodies is changing, you know, every decade now too. So you get implants in one decade and the next decade they might be out. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's just so interesting to see all these shifts happening and they're happening fast these days. Um, and so for me, by the time I got into adulthood and I was getting really active and into fitness and I was hiring bikini competitor trainers, you know, because I wanted that look, I had no interest in competing. I just really wanted to achieve that look. And part of that, you know, was the implants. Um, so naturally as I became more and more fit, that was the next thing I wanted, because when you're really fit as a woman, you don't have a lot of breast tissue, So, you know, they were even smaller (laughs) at that point. So I made the decision. I was probably around 30 years old, um, 29 or 30. And interestingly, and they don't really tell you that this is possible. I didn't realize this was possible. But afterward, I, it took time for me to get accustomed to the way I looked, to get used to seeing a different person in the mirror, you know, that wasn't my body. And so I really struggled with that emotionally. I cried like every day for months <laughs> and it wasn't love at first sight. Let's just say that. And, um, I did grow to love them and that's what made it really hard to make the decision to have them out eventually because of where it came from, right. That was deeply ingrained in my subconscious from childhood And so I needed to address that. I needed to work through that in order to be able to get to the point where I saw the value in who I am outside of my appearance, right? So I needed to do that work on myself and it took me a long, long time. And so when I had the implants placed, I would say maybe within about six months started developing all kinds of really unusual symptoms that I'd never experienced before. And, you know, I did, I was working as a nurse, you know, night shift, um, 12 to 16 hour shifts and, you know, it's hard on the body. And I had been doing that for four or five years at that point. Um, so I kind of chalked it up to just being tired and being on night shift and that really messing with my body. Um, so I thought, you know, if I get on day shift, I'll be good. I did get on day shift. It did nothing changed. And, you know, I was experiencing things that were very classic for hush for hypothyroid. So hair loss, just a lot of fatigue, dry skin, you know, some, some breakouts, um, feeling really cold. Like I could, I could barely manage. I had to sleep with hot packs because I could not get warm at night. I just was freezing to the point of my, my fingers just felt like icicles you know, so a lot of unusual things. And I ended up going to the doctor and they did lab work. I asked them to do, you know, um, rule out thyroid issues and they did and thought I had no problem whatsoever. And that maybe I should just go see a therapist, you know, um, because all of these symptoms couldn't possibly be from my thyroid. So, uh, I ended up finding a different doctor, functional medicine or naturopathic doctor, really who I emailed her. I just said, Hey, this is my lab work. No one else is acknowledging that I have Hashimoto's and a hypofunctioning thyroid. And, you know, if I come to you, will you treat me? Will, will you diagnose me? And she said, yes. She said, you clearly have Hashimoto's. My antibodies were in the five hundreds and I went to her and, you know, it was nice to be validated. However, no one ever asked me about my breast implants. Um, I did mention them, but it didn't seem to raise a red flag in anyone's mind that I ever saw. 
but I had that intuition about it early on. You know, I, I had that um, kind of seed planted in my brain, just wondering if it could be the implants because I never had a single symptom before the implants went in. Mm-hmm even though I was working night shift and I was, um, you know, had a terrible diet and I was breaking my body down at the gym and, you know, just not a very healthful lifestyle. Um, and so what I got in that approach was just a natural allopathy, basically, rather than giving me pills, prescription pills, I was given supplements, you know, it was never really, no one ever really looked for the underlying cause. And so I, you know, just being more analytical, I started doing the research on my own. I found functional diagnostic nutrition through a podcast (laughs) and looked into it and decided, you know, I think this could really help me. They're looking for the root cause, like that really resonates with me. And if I'm going to do this, I want to go through it and learn to be a practitioner so that I can not only help myself, but also help others. Because I know there's got to be other people going through what I'm going through. I can't be the only one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? And so as I'm going through all of this, I start developing even more symptoms, right? So I'm, I'm, things are progressing. I'm developing gas and bloating and, you know, constipation and diarrhea and food intolerances and cystic acne, irritability, anxiety, depression, chest tightness, um, heart palpitations. My heart would just kind of race out of nowhere when I was just doing nothing, watching TV. Um, I had developed sound, light, and chemical sensitivity. Um, Sometimes I would see something out of the corner of my eye and turn and nothing is there, right? And so I would have these hallucinations. Um, I had a really hard time in public because of the anxiety. I had a lot of social anxiety and just being around around a lot of stimulation felt like really overwhelming to my nervous system. So that was a lot. Brain fog. That's another one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Brain fog, difficulty learning new information, retaining it, difficulty with words, recalling words and remembering people's names and things like that. In the middle of a heated conversation, I would lose all train of thought. I couldn't even get a word out because the stress of the heated conversation was just enough to just exacerbate all that brain fog even more. Um, so that was a real struggle because I'm working in a healthcare field. You know, I'm a, a nurse. I have to be on it and sharp. <laughs> and so when I would read something new, it took me 10 times of reading it through just to understand it. Um, and even then, a half hour later, I couldn't regurgitate it to you. So that was really frustrating. And there's a lot more, of course, that that I dealt with, but those are kind of the big things. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of different menstrual irregularities developed and all kinds of stuff. So hormone imbalances, you name it, I had it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, And I I appreciate that you started where you started with your story, right? The the emotional and the the mental aspect. And and I say, Mm -hmm. I say mental and I don't mean that in a negative way, but like just that, that, that aspect that especially women deal with, with that, where it's like you said, society puts a certain pressure on you to look a certain way. And so now, you know, as, as a male, it's not something that I get, but as a dad raising daughters, it's something that I have to be aware of, right? Like, how do Mm -hmm. I, how do I speak into that for my young girls early on and not, not let them, move towards that if we can avoid that. So I appreciate that because I've had a number and, and at your suggestion from the last time we talked, I put uh, a couple of questions on my intake. And so I've had a number of women in here now since the last time we talked and that have had implants. Um, some of them have said, yes, I have implants and I don't know about breast implant illness. And some of them have said, yes, I have them. Yes, I know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there've been a couple that have brought up that specific part of it of, you know, I know these can be an issue. I know that they might be an issue, but I have to get to the point where I can emotionally detach from them. Yeah. Right. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that. Cause that's something that I think is, it's gotta be universal. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether, whether it's because of, you know, wanting to look a certain way they got them or because women had to get them because of a medical issue like cancer and mastectomy, like there's, there's still gotta be that component of it there. So I appreciate yeah. that you started there. Um, mm-hmm. 
you started to get into a lot of the symptoms you felt. Um, are there any other, because this is going to be a common question, right? Is, well, how do I know that it's the implants? Because, and we'll get into what it looks like, maybe getting into explant. Like that's a huge step for a woman to take is to, to get implants removed. So how, how can a woman know, Hey, this could be from the implants because a lot of those symptoms you mentioned could be tied to so many other things. Like you mentioned the thyroid, a lot of those symptoms could be mold toxicity. It could, you know, there's so many things. So how do you, how do you know what, what kind of a process can they go through um, to decipher that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one important thing to note is that when talking about like diagnoses, like Hashimoto's or whatever it may be, chronic fatigue syndrome or, um, you know, different SIBO, things like that. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not, that's a symptom, Mm -hmm. right? It's a collection of symptoms. It's not the root cause, you know, so we have to get further upstream. What is fueling the downstream? I, I don't want to call it dysregulation. I want to call it adaptation, right? Cause the body's smart Mm -hmm. and it's not trying to hurt you or kill you. It is trying to adapt Mm -hmm. stressors at hand. And that, that presents itself in as far as how you feel as symptoms, right? But that's your body's way of communicating with you about, you know, hey, something's going on here and it's time to pay attention and to look into this, right? So that's kind of how I look at diagnoses. It's not an underlying cause. It's not a root cause. We got to get further upstream. And I see implants as a root cause mm-hmm. because they are a chronic source of toxic exposure that's just slowly bleeding into the body over time. And they're a chronic immune stimulant as a foreign object that doesn't belong there. The body knows it doesn't belong there. And that's why the body creates a capsule around each implant to try to wall it off, right? Try to protect Mm -hmm. you from that. It's kind of like a splinter. Your body can't push an implant out like it does a splinter, but it can create scar tissue around it to protect you, right? Sure. It doesn't do a very good job, but it, at least it's trying. And, yeah. um, you know, when you look at capsule underneath the microscope, it's actually more lace-like. It's not completely closed. It's more lace-like. There's a lot of holes. And so things can get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a perfect perfect science there with, with the capsule creation. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and people can have different thicknesses of capsule as well. People can have really, really fine, thin capsules and people can have really thick ones. And sometimes those result in a capsular contracture, right? Which is requires medical attention usually. Um, so when I think about how do you know if it's the implants? Well, you don't, first of all, you're not going to know. There's no test that's going to tell you, yeah, your implants are a problem. Um, hopefully there will be in the near future. I don't know, you know, there's always new research and new Mm -hmm. things being developed. So maybe that will be something that is developed at some point. There is an MRI that can be done that has the potential to be helpful, but I, I still think all of it has flaws. Any, anything that could possibly indicate something about the breast implants, they all have flaws. So the MRI is something that was established by a doctor out of, I think it's Spain. I can't remember for sure, but his name is Dr. Eduardo Fleury. And he didn't create the MRI obviously, but he created a specific way of doing it Mm -hmm. um, so that he can pinpoint if someone might be dealing with breast implant illness. And so what he's looking for on this MRI is um, visualization of a silicone induced granuloma between the implant and the capsule. And if he sees that on MRI, that's indicative of breast implant illness. But I did not, I mean, I didn't have an MRI, but I, I didn't have any kind of unusual finding upon explantation. They looked absolutely perfect. My capsules were great. You know, like there was no reason to believe that they were causing an issue by looking at them when they came out, you know, and by, you know, the report from my surgeon of what he saw when he got in there no indication whatsoever. So, you know, it's, it's one avenue that someone can take if they're really on the fence and they're like, I need to know, it still may not give you the answer, but it's one, one tool that could be utilized. And then other than that, my thought is if you are dealing with chronic symptoms or diagnoses or illness of any kind, and it's been going on, you know, a long time, 
you've tried a lot of things, you haven't gotten the results or the outcome that you've looked for, you've wanted, then you have to consider the breast implants. And that's kind of the path I went down is I was willing to do everything I could do without removing the implants to see if I could heal myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I only got about 50% better, you know, through that approach and removing the implants was the next step I needed to do. And so when I think about the implants, it's, it's never just one thing. First of all, if you think that removing the implants is going to solve all of your health problems, we need to, we need to set realistic expectations, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a step in the right direction, but we're living in a very toxic world dealing with all kinds of different immune stressors and um, toxic exposures, things like that, right? So Mm -hmm. we have to consider that it is multifactorial. Illness in general is multifactorial, regardless of what it is you're dealing with. And yeah, we call something breast implant illness because we it's just how our brains work, right? We want to give it a name. That doesn't mean it's the only thing that's going on that's causing issues. So I think it's important to address any potential hidden stressor on the body and the breast implants are one of those if you want to completely heal. So we may not know if, you know, if it's the breast implants were the trigger, but even if they weren't the trigger, they were certainly helping to set the stage for the eventual fall. For sure. And, you know, and that's, and that's something we're going to come back and and talk about, but like the symptoms you mentioned, they do span multiple systems of the body. Right. And I, and I heard this just, I heard this said again just yesterday by uh, somebody that you're allowed to have more than one thing going on, right? Like it, it, you're right. Like, and especially in Western medicine, we tend to isolate and say it's this or it's this or it's this. But in reality, like you mentioned symptoms that would span the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, the endocrine system, the immune system. Uh, And that's just, that's just four systems right there that we named. And in the Western medicine system, it would be take these cardiovascular symptoms. Oh, the heart's ruled out. You're good. Right. Or the endocrine system. No, everything yeah. looks okay. You know? And so taking that, that bigger picture, like you said, looking upstream, what's the root cause mm-hmm. um, that's, that's so important because more and more, and I'm seeing it in my practice, just as in what I do. And I know you're seeing it in your practice where people have gone that route and they've been told this looks fine. This looks fine. No, you're okay. But there's obviously something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and we'll, I want to come back in a moment and, and talk more about how, how breast implants specifically um, can affect multiple systems, what you've seen, how they affect different systems of the body, what, what that looks like for, uh, for women. But um, real quickly, I think it would be helpful if there's a woman listening to this, that is, maybe hearing this for the first time, or maybe they're considering explant. Can you just kind of briefly describe what that process of explant looks like? I know you have a lot of resources on your website and we'll point them to that, but like, what are some of the key things that a woman needs to be looking for and considering when they're considering explant? Yeah. For, so I think it's really important to, um, you know, do your due diligence with regard to surgeons and interview several You may have to travel outside of your city or state um, because not every plastic surgeon is skilled at removing them. And any any plastic surgeon can remove your implants, but are they going to do it in a way that is protecting you, that's setting you up for the best possible post-operative outcome, right? And so that's what we want to consider. And so the things you're looking for that are important to me anyway are going to be if the surgeon has done a lot of explants already, you know, and I'm talking hundreds, you know, not just a few. Mm. And I think that's really important because there is a lot of skill involved with removing them properly. So proper explant procedure is removing in a perfect world. It would be removing the implants and block, which is a cancer term actually, but we use it in this way as well, because it really does kind of describe what we're after. And that's removing the implant with the capsule intact as one unit, rather than cutting the capsule open and taking the implant out and then maybe taking the the capsule out or leaving it in. Right. So if you cut the capsule, you don't know if there's a rupture and an MRI imaging isn't always going to be able to reveal whether there's a rupture or not. There are false negatives and false positives. 
So you really don't know until you get in there if there's an actual rupture. So imagine if it's, especially silicone, of course, because the cohesive gel, the nature of that is that it sticks together, right? So, but when, if it's ruptured, it's going to be all over the place. And that's, it's like a toxic soup. And you don't want that getting into all the dense lymphatic tissue in the area and traveling throughout the body and, you know, clogging up downstream organs because that's what will happen. And uh, we don't even know if we can truly get a silicone out of the body at this point. It's so sticky and goopy and it's just, we don't know if we can get it out. Um, so removing the end, blo end block is really important. Um, not every surgeon is going to be able to do that. And even the really skilled ones can't guarantee it, right? They'll try, they'll do their best, and they probably have a really high success rate, but that's not going to be a guarantee. So then we also want to make sure that the every speck of the capsule is removed. When you have a, a, a plastic surgeon who maybe doesn't understand breast implant illness or doesn't believe in it or doesn't do you know proper explant procedure, um, usually it's the, the surgeon that placed them that you don't really want to go back to. Um, they usually don't have the skill and comfort level of removing the capsule because it can be adhered to a lot of surrounding tissue. And so oftentimes they don't see the point in removing the capsule. They'll tell you, oh, your body will just absorb that. It doesn't. Um, and I've had clients go back for exploratory surgery after being told they had the capsule removed and just to discover they had two or three different capsules in each side from different um, replacement surgeries they've had done. And so the, the reason that's so important to remove the capsule is because imagine, you know, this is a fibrous tissue that has been surrounding implants that at body temperature, when you heat them up, can be bleeding and then you attract, you know, there's a lot of dense lymphatic tissue in the breasts and they're not sterile, right? The, the, the breast ductwork is not sterile and there can be lots of biofilm formation and, and bacteria hanging out in there in addition to the foreign object, right? So more immune stimulation. And, and then of course, all the toxins and the silicone and things that are in the implants kind of become a part of that matrix. And so we want to take not just the implant out, but the capsule as well. And that might involve going in and scraping capsule off the ribs, cutting it out of fatty tissue or muscle tissue. Um, and scraping off the ribs is a really skilled procedure because it's very thin tissue between the lungs and the ribs. Right? Mm -hmm. So the risk of puncturing the lung is, is higher. And so you really want a skilled surgeon because of that, who's really comfortable doing that. Um, and then I think for me, I, I would want somebody who believes me, right. Who believes that I am dealing with illness, at least partly due to the breast implants and preferably someone who's no longer placing them. Right. Or at least is really thorough about their, um, disclosures and just, you know, informed consent making sure that people really understand what their, what their risk is choosing the implants right? Because it's not their decision at the end of the day, but people need to be well-informed and most people have not been. For sure. Um, so you, you mentioned a lot of stuff that will get us for sure into why we're having this conversation as a PT and talking with you. But um, one thing I want you to um, just comment on is you talked spe specifically about silicone implants, but they're saline. So mm -hmm. what about the people that have saline implants and they're thinking, oh, I'm good. I've got saline, not silicone. What would you say to that? Yeah, they both have their problems. So, you know, there's silicone, there's saline, there, the silicone that's on the market today is supposed to be this better version that, you know, if it ruptures, it won't go everywhere. It will just stay put. Right. Mm. Um, but, you know, silicone itself has like 30 something. I feel like it might be like 38. I can't remember anymore. Different toxic compounds within the implants. And these are things that were part of what was put in to create the implant, but also byproducts from um, creating the implant itself, right? So byproducts of production. Mm -hmm. And so this is like neuro, neuro, um, sorry, carcinogens, neurotoxins, um, 
all different types of heavy metals and environmental chemicals. And you don't want that in your body. And think about like silicone is almost like plastic, right? It's, it's kind of replaced a lot of plastic things in our world today. We've gotten away from the plastic. We're like, all right, plastic's bad. Endocrine right. disruptor. Let's move to silicone. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. silicone accumulates in our body. It bioaccumulates. It is a neurotoxin and it can chelate our neurotransmitters and it can cause cell death, right? It mm. just when we have these different macrophages that come in and try to gobble up all this debris, right? But as soon as they gobble, start gobbling up silicone, they explode and all that silicone just goes right back into the body. And then the whole process keeps happening again, right? So there's a big problem with silicone implants. In addition to that, I've already talked about the fact that we're dealing with biofilm and different bacteria as well that we're finding and, and they're a foreign body, right? So saline implants are also a foreign body, right? There's no difference there in that aspect. The saline implants also have a silicone shell. So if you think you're not being exposed to silicone because you have saline implants, you're misinformed. And that silicone shell can start to slough away as well with user wear and you know, just as the implant ages and is heated up to body temperature. The other thing is that they have a valve and yes, it's just saline inside the implant. Not always. Sometimes they actually put in some betadine as well, just to like cover their bases, trying to prevent infection. But um, that's not something that really works. (laughs) Um, um, And so they use the valve and the saline implants to fill it with saline, right? So they put the implant shell in, then they go in and push the saline in to make it the size that you want it. That valve is supposed to only be one way, but it can become defective over time or it can become, it can be defective upon implantation, right? So there can be errors in how it was produced and that can lead to um, the valve not functioning properly. Mm. Or if someone has a trauma, a car accident, a fall, even just down the stairs, yeah, sporting sure. injury, like someone grabs you and hugs you too hard. You never know. Like that, that valve could backflow and then you have it going both ways, fluid in and out, body fluids, the saline. And if you're, you know, exposed to different microorganisms or just the organisms that are in the breast tissue in general, that can get into the implant and colonize and start growing like a Petri dish. So one thing that is very, it's not common, I would say, I want to set realistic, uh, you know, a real understanding of this and not make people super freaked out because it's not super common, but it does happen to where mold gets in. And then you've got black mold growing inside that implant. Mold loves dark, mm-hmm. moist, warm places, right? And so it's yeah, the perfect yeah. environment to grow. And then imagine mold, you've probably seen clients who come in or are dealing with mold illness. Imagine it in your body and you, you can't escape it. It's not like you can just go and move and be free of it. And, you know, you, you're, it's in there constantly yeah. just exposing you. So that's a big deal, right? So there's, sure. there's a lot of problems with both. Yeah, no, that I, that's helpful. So the moral of that story then is, is if you have saline, don't completely rule it out. Keep it in the yeah. back of your mind. For yeah, sure. okay. absolutely. Um, so let's get into a little bit more about why you and I are having this conversation, right? So as a as a licensed PT that does a lot of body work and does a lot of work with fascia, um, work with uh, visceral mobilization, so mobility of the organs, um, it, it's something that I've seen over the years many times where just let's take breast implant illness out for a moment and just take having breast implants and how that changes the tensions on the fascia. Cause one, it's a surgery. So there's scars. Mm-hmm. Um, two, it's going to change the tension on fascia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've seen over the years, women come in that have had shoulder issues, neck issues, mid back, like between the th- uh, shoulder blades, you know, mm-hmm. pains that come on. And when you go through a more thorough history and you look at the timeline, all, it's not uncommon for it to go back to somewhere around the time that they had mm-hmm. implants. Um, so just from an implant standpoint, what are, what are some things that you could speak into that you've seen that you personally maybe have experienced as far as just how that maybe changes the tension through the body, what, what maybe a, um, a woman might feel from just having that implant in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, you know, the fashion, I'm, and I'm not a fashion expert by any means. So you're, you, we'll, we'll go back and forth. Those great. Yeah. On the list. <laughs> um, but you know, here's what I, here's what I'll say about, first of all, is that yes, the implants, when they're placed, of course, they're either under the muscle or under the fatty tissue, right? Under the breast tissue. And either way, it creates, it's heavy, first of all, and it's distending, it's pulling on the tissue. And it's not just pulling on the front of your body, but it's also pulling everything else forward, right? So you often see people with shoulders that are kind of rolled in, hunched back over, hunched forward, you know, their neck is kind of not at the right angle. They're kind of, um, dealing with a lot of neck pain and shoulder pain, maybe even rib pain. Um, and that can also refer to different areas, right? So it's not always local, you know, the, the, the exact spot that's problematic that you're going to feel the discomfort in or the issues. And I definitely dealt with a lot of neck pain for me. It was always left-sided. I don't, and and also the, the implant on the left was my problematic Mm -hmm. one. So anytime I was laying down, if I was laying flat on my back or if I was laying on the left side, it would pull right in that left direction. And so it was adhered to my ribs. And I didn't know that until I explanted, but every time I would lay that way, it would just pull on that tissue on that fascia and really hurt. Um, and so that's one thing that I dealt with. It's really hard, especially when you are working with someone on, you know, alignment or body mechanics or fascia or things like that. It's really hard to hold that, to maintain that work that's been done when you still have that source in your body that's continuing to cause the problem, right? So an example is when I had chiropractic adjustments, I could never hold an adjustment, yeah. I never, ever held an adjustment longer than a week because I constantly had that force pulling me. Right. So my, my spine was always out. My, my alignment was always off. Um, so I think that's really important. And that's, that's a big deal. We want the nervous system to be online, right? Sure. For that's sure. So important. It's the communication between everything, every sure. part of your body and the brain. Yeah. So you know, I think some issues that I see now and the reason that I've started recommending visceral manipulation and different types of body work to people is because I started to connect the dots between surgery, scar tissue, fascia, energy, the flow of energy, the flow of drainage and all of that. And I started doing a little bit of research, but not a ton yet, but, um, and understanding that scar tissue or adhesions is basically like it's like a snag in the pantyhose, right? It's, it disrupts everything. And I noticed it really significantly for myself after having a laparoscopy where they had like five different incisions and then also uh, like a bikini incision for a bowel resection. This is a part of my story, by the way, I haven't shared that part yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, this was stage four endometriosis. So um, had a lot of different pelvic organs involved. Uh, for me, that was, that changed everything. I still to this day don't have good drainage flow there in, in the abdomen, in the abdominal region because of all those incisions that create scar tissue. And I didn't have that problem before, you know? And so thinking about, you know, we have the implants going in, there's a scar, there's shoving those implants in and separating the tissues and Mm -hmm. all of the disruption that occurs there. And then there's more scars from every surgery thereafter, where even if it's just replacing them or having them out, and then you have this big incision when you get them out, right Mm -hmm. underneath the breast tissue. And a lot of women have done more surgeries than that, not just the implants. A lot of people have gone through what they call mommy makeovers, where they get the works done, you know, and they have all kinds of different scars everywhere. And what I see as a really common issue is they really struggle with drainage. Mm. They struggle so much just getting things to move, getting the lymph to move, getting bowels to move. You know, um, there's lots of stagnation in the liver gallbladder area. And I think that all points to the scar tissue and the adhesions that are disrupting the flow of everything. For sure. And uh... I saw when I was preparing for this interview with you, I saw on your website, you did a blog, a a really thorough blog on drainage and kind of covered a lot of that. And um, 
you know, let's connect some dots a little bit between fascia and the drainage and the nervous system. And because there's a lot of connections here. Um, So like, for example, when you have the implants here, so there's fascia, there's, there's different depths of layers to the fascia. And so you've got a fascia here called the clavopectoral fascia. And that fascia is continuous with a fascia that's um, uh, over a muscle just underneath the um, clavicle or the collarbone called the subclavian fascia, which is continuous with a fascia that goes into the neck. And then that fascia is continuous with fascia that goes into the abdomen. And so just from a, from a fascial intention standpoint, now we've already involved not just the, the chest and the shoulder, but we've involved the neck, we've involved the abdomen, and then that goes into the pelvis. And so um, there's definitely connections there that, like you said, it's not, it may not be just pain at the site of implant. It could be elsewhere because of those pulls. And then we know that fascia, um, part of what fascia does is it's um, um, it, exchange of fluid. And so there's mm-hmm. the interstitial space that um, we've, we've learned over the last few years that that's a really huge part of the exchange of fluid. And so now if there's tensions and tightness and restrictions in fascia, now you're starting to change fluid exchange and block mm-hmm. fluid exchange. And, and just in this area, we're talking about major areas of lymphatic drainage, right? We've got thoracic mm-hmm. outlet or inlet, depending on how you learned it. Um, you've got the, the axillus so of that underarm, you've got the, the upper abdomen, you have lymph nodes along the chest. And these are all areas that the breast tissue would drain into. And mm-hmm. so, um, it certainly makes sense that now we're starting to get multiple systems involved because of that backup and fluid drainage. Um, and then from the, you mentioned the nervous system, but then from the nervous system standpoint, um, a few, few months ago now, I was sitting on a webinar, uh, two guys that are very well known in the fascia world. They were talking about just the updates on fascia. And one of the things that they talked about was how they've discovered that there are more nerve endings in the fascia than they ever thought were there. And in fact, more than what they previously thought, um, so much so that now they used to say the skin was our most sensitive organ, but now they're saying it's the fascia because there's over, it was something like 240 million nerve endings. And the majority of those nerve endings were from the sympathetic nervous system. Mm. So now we start seeing sympathetic fight or flight. If we have tightness in the fascia, is that part of what plays into how many people are living in this fight or flight and not being able to get that balance between parasympathetic. And, and so in my world, this, this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because it, it, it does come down to more than just the implants because who walks into my practice are not coming necessarily because they had implants. They're coming because of the other systems that were affected, whether it's the musculoskeletal and the fascia or from the visceral standpoint, maybe they're having gut issues and they're being sent because of digestion issues or constipation or just odd symptoms, um, the heart palpitations, you know, things like that, that could be related to restrictions in the fashions and these organs. So it's, it is very, very interesting when you start connecting some of those dots of how connected that is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I even see it regarding like this fluid exchange. I see it when people are going through some of the deeper um, kind of healing work that I teach, sometimes people end up kind of blowing up and retaining a lot of fluid because they can't move things. Like they can't mm. mobilize they keep things flowing well, you know? And so that's a good indication as well that someone really could benefit from some fascia work. Sure. Um, but I, I do see the effect of it quite often. I mean, in every case, basically. And I think it's really important when you're doing healing work, going through some kind of program or protocol specific for you, that part of that involves doing body work, you know, and it's not just about taking supplements, you know, there, we really have to be intentional and we need a team of people, right? We really do need a multi-therapeutic approach. And so that's why I refer people to body workers like you. And because I think that that is a really, really valuable tool. Um, and it just makes a world of difference for people. And the one client of mine who I sent to you mm-hmm. had just such an incredible experience and just had like nothing but amazing things to say about working with you. And she just felt so stuck before she came in. 
And within even one treatment, she felt so much relief. And, you know, we do a lot of parasite work in, um, in the work that I teach people. And part of the outcome of doing that, that, um, that deep visceral work for her was a huge release of parasites in the toilet the next day. Yeah. That was crazy to hear about liver flukes, liver flukes were in the, like at least 50 of them. I mean, she showed me a picture of what that looked like and it was (laughs) a lot of liver flukes. Yeah. And they were just hanging out in there because she had all these adhesions and everything was stuck. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was, that was, that was crazy because, and and I had talked to her about this, like, I know that that kind of work absolutely has the potential to affect um, that kind of an outcome. But when you actually hear about it, and thankfully I didn't get that picture, so I appreciate that. <laughs> she said that to you and not me. Um, I, w- I would have taken that picture and be like, oh, that's awesome, because we talk about poop all the time with people. But um, it, just, it just blows my mind the effect that um, – treatments can have, whether it's body work or the detoxing and and drainage, um, opening drainage pathways, you know, how that affects not just the local, but the whole system. And we, and we see that so often. Um, I'm, I'm curious because I want to make sure we talk about what you are doing and, um, some of the things that you have been working on. So talk to us a little bit about, what, what somebody working with you looks like, some of the things that you've been working on. I know you've been working hard on a lot of things. Um, so I want you to, I want you to talk about that and share about that. So uh, what does working with you look like if somebody wanted to reach out to you? And then what have you been working on to, to help women in this um, scenario? Sure, sure. So up until this year, um, the only option to work with me was to work with me one-on-one as you know, cl- uh, client and practitioner relationship. Um, and you know, I'm only one person, so that's really limiting as far as how many people that I can work with at a time, because most of the women that come to me are not just looking for improving a few things. They are very, very sick and they've gone to, from one doctor to the next health coaches, nutritionists, all kinds of different practitioners and not had any kind of results or maybe just a little bit, but not nearly what they're looking for or hoping to achieve. And because of that, it's very time intensive, right? And so I just have very limited capacity to be able to work with, you know, more than a couple new people a month. Mm-hmm. And so through the work that I've done over the years with my one-on-one clients, I have really established lots of amazing tools and, you know, protocols that are tailored to the unique individual that each person is, of course, that just work. And it's repeatable time and time again, every time, you know, and it may, the path may look a little different for each person, but the principles of what we're diving into and addressing are the same. And so I decided to kind of take all that knowledge and, and effort and work that I put together over the last several years and put it into an online group program. Mm. So right now, you know, phase one is the place that everyone starts and phase one of the explant reset group program is perfect for anyone who is planning to explant and wants to really optimize and prepare their body for that surgery for the best possible surgical outcome. And it's also the first starting place for someone who's already explanted and wants to start getting into some deeper dive healing work. You have to start with phase one. Phase one is drainage. It's, you know, restoring mitochondrial function. It's, it's you know, um, really working on revving up energy production and um, making sure that everything is draining well. Because if you can't drain well, if you're not pooping, if your liver and gallbladder are not functioning very well, your kidneys, things like that, then you're not going to be able to get toxins out. So I often see a lot of people going right for the detox because that's what you see online that people are sharing that you should be doing. You know, they're saying, oh, you just need a detox, take these supplements or whatever it may be, but that's not going to get someone from A to B. And it's possibly going to make them feel a whole lot worse if they haven't focused on drainage pathways first. So that's the majority of what we focus on in phase one. There's a lot of of additional things that we get into. It's a very... Um, I would say beefy phase because mm-hmm. um, it's laying the foundation, you know, for, for the sure. rest of the work to be successful. And when we do it in the right order, people get better. 
you know, and so we have five phases of the program. Um, I've just finished phase three and I have a group going right into phase three right now. Um, and I have another group in phase one. So, you know, we're just kind of um, offering the group program um, a few times a year, basically at this point, that probably will change at some point. But for now, we're keeping it small and just kind of really um, testing the, the group model out. And it's still so far going really, really well. And I'm just loving the fact that, you know, like-minded women are coming together, so supportive of each other, cheering each other on, giving each other advice even about, you know, what helped them or, you know, what they tried and what they didn't like or liked. And it's just such a beautiful connection and tribe of women, you know, a shared story that they're going mm. and experiencing together. And so I love that part of it. Um, and, you know, I am very cautious about who I work with, you know, so it is a great, amazing group of women. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I can't help everybody, you know, and I think the right person who will do well in my program is someone who's, you know, um, will, will be willing to step out of their comfort zone, try new things, um, do the hard things. Uh, get step out of victim mode, right? Get into more of a healing mindset, take personal responsibility for their health and do the things they need to do, you know, and be willing to put in that time, effort and financial investment in themselves. For sure, for sure. And to learn about that program, is that on your website that they can find a little bit more yeah. about it, that? And, okay. Yeah. So on my website, my website's reversing breast implant illness.com. And there's a tab that says detox. Okay. That's the page for phase one. So people can read about it there. And right now I have a wait list, but so if you're interested, I highly recommend getting on the wait list. Cause like I said, at this point, it's only being offered, you know, basically quarterly. Okay. And like, like you said, that, that first phase is not just for a woman that, has gone through explant, but somebody who's wanting to prepare for explant. Yeah. Um, would somebody who maybe is not quite at the point of considering explant, but they want to know, or they want to see if detoxing will help them while they still have the implants in, mm -hmm. is that somebody that would benefit from that or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. absolutely. Because either way, you know, if it's, if it's someone who has decided they do want to explant or someone who's not sure yet, either way, that first step is the right step for everyone. For sure. um, and it is amazing how much better people feel just opening up those drainage pathways. Yeah. Because absolutely. if you get the toxins out, then you're going to feel a lot better. For um, sure. That doesn't mean feeling a lot better doesn't equal someone is better, right? That's so that, that's an important distinguishing factor. Symptoms are the last thing to show up when there's dysregulation or imbalances happening in the body. Um, but yeah, I've had plenty, I've had a few people that I've worked with who felt so much better just doing the work that we do. They had planned on explanting and they just decided not to. Yeah, that's good. That's good to <laughs> that's know. That's not my decision, but of course, yeah, yeah. They decided. <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, and then what, what other, is there any other aspect of what you do that, you want to talk about or highlight, or I know, I know you're on Instagram, um, mm -hmm. same handle as your website, right? I think reversing mm -hmm. breast implant illness. Yeah. Um, is there any other aspect of what you do that you want to talk about? Well, you know, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, the work that I do is really a whole body approach, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's mind, body, spirit. And I think those are all really important factors and it's not just about taking supplements, you know, it's hard work. Yeah. And any one of my clients will tell you it's hard work. You know, yeah. can't do that work for you. For you sure. have to be ready to do it and willing to do it. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that's why I end up seeing a lot of people who've tried everything and now they're just like, I will literally do anything to get better, you know? For sure. For sure. Um, so if people can bypass all of that and just go right to something like this that I've created for them, then yeah. they don't have to worry about all, they don't have to go down that path of trying to, you know, try this and try that thing and it not working, you know? Right. So, and I did that myself. It was yeah. not right. a pleasant experience. People, um, people so that are, go ahead. No, the hope is just that, you know, people see this as a, like the first stop. Yeah. You know, rather sure. than the last. 
Yeah. And I was going to say people that have gotten to the place that you are where you've gone through it and now you're helping people um, that have gone through what you've gone through it. You're, you're hopefully saving them time, right? Not, not making the mistakes that you made or waiting and going the route that you went that didn't work. Um, So yeah, that's, that's the hope, right? You, you save them time, you save, save them their health. Um, you mm-hmm. save them financially, uh, from spending yeah. a lot on stuff that doesn't work, maybe work as well. So absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And then, and as far as other things in the future, there's going to be some exciting new things happening. Um, you know, I'm growing my team over here and that's my intention is to create a team of people with different expertise who can be a part of this work and that, you know, people don't have to go to quite so many additional places for additional modalities outside of body work, of course. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. <laughs> and stuff like that, right? Where you need an, you need to go right. and physically see those people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's my intention. And then, um, you know, there's a big, like, really exciting movement I'll be launching soon on social media and YouTube. So okay. that will be coming. So stay tuned for that. Okay. So people need to be following you and, and yeah. see what's coming. Um, and that's a good point. You made it, you made a point like working with you is, is virtual. Is it a hundred percent virtual? Do you 100% do virtual? Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're not, so like I'm in the DFW area, I'm in Fort Worth, you're not in Fort Worth. And so that's good yeah. to know because people that are listening to this that are in the Metroplex or maybe they're in a different state, they can still work with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've never actually seen a single client in person Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that, that's, that's been a nice shift that's happened with technology pandemic and just how everything shifted to go largely virtual that I, I know we've benefited from it in our family where we, for our daughter, we see a doctor that's up in the Chicago area and largely it's been virtual because that's, that's how everybody had to pivot. And it's, it gave us access to somebody that would have been really hard for us to get access to, um, otherwise. And so, uh, Mm. I'm I'm grateful that there are people out there, um, that can offer expertise and things like what you are and can do that in a way that makes it accessible to people that aren't right around you. Um, Mm -hmm. because you've got so much knowledge and you've helped so many people and it'd be, it'd be a shame that if it was just in this geographical location, you know, so I'm, Uh I'm glad to, Glad that that's the case. Um, one thing I'd like to end up with uh, with everybody is, wh- what would you like to leave the audience with? If there was one, you could leave them. Oh wow, that's a loaded question. I know I, I didn't prepare you for that one. <laughs> what do I want to leave the audience with? Well, you know, in the in the earlier stages of my work with myself and clients, I really put a lot of emphasis on the physical aspect of healing. As I have experienced more and learned more and expanded, you know, my, my view on things and especially with regard to what creates chronic illness in the body, what, what are the root causes? It's things that are, it's toxins, it's pathogens, and it's trauma, whether that's physical or emotional, doesn't matter. It's all perceived the same by the body. So we need to be taking a big picture look at what's going on rather than tunnel vision on the breast implants. And we need to focus on the mental emotional aspect of healing. That is so incredibly underrated. And it's amazing the progress someone can make in every aspect of their life uncovering that, like looking at that and unpacking it, right? And using certain tools and modalities to help heal trauma or mental emotional stressors or things like that from the past, even micro traumas all add up, right? And so that can be an avenue that most people miss and they're completely missing the boat if they're not addressing the mental emotional aspect of healing. And they're never going to get as far into their healing as they could if they had focused on that. So what I want to leave the audience with is don't forget about the mental emotional aspect. Don't forget about unpacking the reason that you got the implants in the first place and doing that inner work to discover who you truly are outside of what you look like and finding, you know, what makes you, you, what makes you special and unique because we all are special and unique. Mm -hmm. 
And don't forget about the body work as well. I mean, Jason is so amazing. I'm just so impressed by you. And especially as a PT, to be quite honest, there aren't a lot of PTs Mm -hmm. out there who really have the depth of understanding about fascia and visceral manipulation that you do. And I really think that you're doing awesome work out there. So if anyone lives in your area, I highly <laughs> recommend going to Jason. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's going to be a great soundbite. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so, so that's great. You brought it full circle. So I appreciate that because we started with your story and you started with the mental and emotional aspect of it for you. Um, and what you're leaving the audience with is don't forget about the mental and emotional aspect. So, um, I think that's perfect. Um, kind of tying up that, um, that end there. So, um, Sarah, thank you so much for taking this time to do this. I think this is, like I said, from the beginning, like this was going to be a different topic for probably people listening to this specific podcast, but I think connecting the dots for why it's important, um, is, is going to be so helpful. So thank you for, for taking the time to do that. Of course. My pleasure. <laughs>